You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Modern Web Podcast. I am your host, Rob Osell. I'm an architect at This.Labs. Today, we are extremely excited to proclaim and let everybody know that if you can JavaScript, you can backend. We're going to be talking about this and much more with our good friend, Swizz Teller. Swizz, how are you doing? I'm doing great. All right. Swizz is a software, a senior software engineer and author of many books, books such as Data Visualization with D3, the Serverless Handbook, and the upcoming, very recently announced, Senior Mindset. We're going to be talking to him about all of those things. But first, a message from today's sponsor, and that is Harman. The Harman Ignite Store Developers Portal is a developer hub dedicated to the Android automotive developer community. The portal provides developers the toolkits and APIs they need to create apps that influence the future of the in-vehicle experience. Check them out via HTTPS, ignitedevelopers.harman.com. All right. So, Swizz, as we jump in, I know we're going to be talking a lot about the back end, and maybe this is a back end story, but recently on Twitter, you were just announcing that you have overcome a pretty major bug. Now, for anybody that is unaware of the time that we're recording this, we're recording this just after the United States activated daylight savings time. And unfortunately, in the two-week window before Europe joins the US uh, and the rest of the world countries around the world do it at their own pace, or not at all. Um, so you recently overcame a big daylight savings time bug. And I just thought this is something so many developers and teams and projects struggle with. So I thought, would you mind sharing your pain as a, as a lesson learned that we can share uh, with, our, with our listeners? Uh, yes. So this was a really fun weekend. Um, it literally took us all weekend to fix because with DST bugs, you have a very tight deadline. And you have to make that deadline, otherwise everything is broken for hundreds of users, right? So in a nutshell, what happened was that we built a system to uh, create recurring appointments. Uh, we, we're building a medical system, so it's like virtual appointments with your doctor. Now imagine if after some random day in the future, March 13th at 2 a.m., all of your appointments are suddenly an hour off. And that's literally what happened to us. And um, the we basically, we fixed all, the, we realized this was happening just a week or two before and we're like, eh, it's gonna be easy to fix. So we procrastinated and then we started working on it and it was not easy to fix at all. Uh, we got, we found all of the ways in our code base that we were mismanaging time zones where we were just storing stuff in UTC, just, store, just dealing with it with uh, UTC offsets and all of that sounds like a great idea when you're building it. When you look online, everyone says, oh yeah, time zones are easy. Just store in UTC, display in the user's time zone. And that's great for point in time events, but it's not great when you have scheduled events that are repeating because time plus seven days. Well, actually in certain cases, you have to offset that by an hour. Or if somebody tells you, I want this appointment to be at 5 p.m. minus 8 because I am in uh, in Los Angeles, in America, Los Angeles, and I want to have a 5 p.m. appointment. Well, right now, it, that's actually 5 p.m. minus 7. So what you have to do is say, I want a 5 p.m. appointment in America, Los Angeles. Forget UTC, forget the 
offsets, you have to say the time zone. So we we learned that painful lesson or relearned. I feel like it's a lesson I learn every couple of years. There's a cool story I had a couple of years ago, an intern built some code, very great code. And he was like, yeah, you know, a day is 60 times 60 times 24 times a thousand or something like that. And you just iterate and you get always plus one day, except on DST. So uh, these days, if you Google 60 times 60 or 60 times 24, my blog still shows up as the very first result for that query because I wrote about how a day is not necessarily 24 hours. What happened here was that a week is not necessarily seven days. It's seven days plus minus one hour. Um, yeah, so that was a really fun lesson. It took us all weekend to fix the database, but we did it. In in time for Monday morning, users no, no user noticed anything was wrong. So that was great. But it was a very fun lesson. Yeah, it, it really is. Honestly, time zones are far trickier than any team tends to think. I feel like some of the most confused I've ever seen architects and senior engineers, some of the people that should be the most knowledgeable is when they're sitting around a table trying to figure out whether what they just built is, is susceptible to some sort of time-related issue. And I think one mm -hmm. of the hardest is the one that you talk about, which is when people give uh, timestamps or time requirements that are supposed to be anchored to their reality. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think nowhere do you see this more than um, something that I've learned as I do more work with people that are international uh, with Google with uh, Google Calendar. And they've solved this, right? Like what they decide to do is anchor it to uh, a meeting to the person who created the meeting, which means in this two-week window where Europe and America are not agreed on daylight savings, depending on who created a meeting, it either shifted for one side of the pond yeah. or shifted for the other yeah. side of the pond. But that behavior can be correct because, you, like you said, if somebody makes an appointment for Tuesday at five, they don't mm -hmm. mean the precise UTC offset corresponding to that in some global, but they mean according to their local time, Tuesday at five. And I think that is something for a lot of teams to learn about is that they think like, oh, I have a very high precision timestamp. I'm UTC aligned. I'm not susceptible mm -hmm. to any of these problems. I've I've abstracted away time zones. But you sometimes do have to wonder, am I working with relative time or absolute time yeah. and uh, yeah. yeah absolutely and like it gets even worse time zones actually change so you really have to use the iana time zone database for this stuff like don't use utc plus eight use america los angeles because um gr really great example a couple of years ago some pacific island said you know what we're actually on the other side of the dateline so they didn't just change hours they changed the whole dates by two days um, and I recently learned that JavaScript actually has a date bug because sometime, I think it was in the 16th, in the 15th or 16th century, we switched from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar, which wiped out 15 days that just aren't a possible date, 15 days and different programming languages treat those 15 days differently. So you get random offsets on the date. Uh, like if you're dealing with historical dates, you can just get random offsets one day here, one day there, because different languages have decided to treat that differently. There you go, everybody. So if you've ever laughed in a pull request because somebody made a global variable for number of seconds in a day and you laughed and said, when would that ever change? You now have your answer. <laughs> uh, yeah.
let's not even get into leap seconds. <laughs> All right. But we did not come here to talk about dates for the whole hour. We came here to talk about the back end. And you know, as was stated in the title, uh, you once wrote a, a pretty interesting blog uh, titled, If You Can JavaScript, You Can Back End. So I think the first question is, um, why did you feel it was necessary to title that? What What is it about the back end that uh, JavaScript users um, are confused about or maybe intimidated by that you felt the need to dispel? So I feel like in the in the web development world or in software engineering, there's this feeling like maybe maybe it's an incorrect assumption I have or an incorrect observation, but I feel like a lot of people don't treat JavaScript programmers as real programmers. There's a lot of that, oh, they're just writing JavaScript. That's, that's front end. That's super easy. Nobody really cares. The real stuff is on the back end where we use real programming languages and do real stuff. And First of all, I don't think Ruby is that much of a that much more of a real programming language than JavaScript um, or Python necessarily. Like I remember, I I had a weird upbringing in terms of software engineering. So I have a high school professor for C, and one of the things she said, "Why are you looking at this Python stuff? That's not a real language. That's just scripting." And first of all, that's terrible for a high school professor to say, but also it. It, I think it shows that old school or graybeards are very into whatever they learned when they were when they were young, and then they became graybeards, and everything that came later is meh. Um, it's kind of like you know with music, anything that you listen to before you were thirty is amazing and perfect, and everything that people listen to after you're thirty is like, what the hell are kids these days listening to? Um, that's that's me trying to repeat a really great joke from an from an actual stand-up comedian, but um, like I feel like these days JavaScript is just everywhere. It's the only language we have where literally every device in the world can execute JavaScript. Uh, there might be some IoT devices that can't, but IoT is not a great space to work in anyway. Um, like, why does my fridge need access to Google Spreadsheets? That's weird. But anyway, so I feel like JavaScript gets a bad rap. It's actually a really good language, especially since we got ES6 and the modern updates. It's become amazing. And I think a lot of people incorrectly think that it only belongs on the front end and that it's only for quote unquote simple things and that the back end should be done in more serious languages. And I feel like the backend is just another piece of code. In a lot of ways, it's actually way simpler than the front end because you don't have different browser environments, you don't have different devices, users. Users are a lot more constrained because because you can say, you know, I'm expecting this to get on the API to come in via the API, and I know exactly what shape it is. And I can have a lot more control of the environment. So in a lot of ways, it's actually easier to work with. It's just that because business logic is complicated and domain modeling is a really hard problem, that's where most of the difficulty of the backend comes. But those are all learnable skills. Once you know JavaScript, once you know how to code, you can very easily work on the backend, especially with modern serverless tooling that moves that kind of hides, not even hides away, but abstracts away all of the 
uh, more complicated stuff with databases and uh, dealing with, I don't know, I kind of forget. I, I'm in a company now where somebody has set a lot of these things up for me and we're using Express and we're actually a full, full, full stack JavaScript shop. Um, so I kind of, for, I tend to forget day to day all of the complexities, but if you, if you start from scratch, it's very easy to be like, oh shit, how do I do the database again? Or how do I connect the API to the database and all of that stuff? But that's, that's very learnable, I think. It's really interesting too, because I've noticed, um, I do a lot of interviewing um, and hiring in, in the JavaScript ecosystem. And I find the answers to the question, how important is full stack development to your career goals to, to produce interesting answers? Because mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I've observed is that as time goes on, you know, what even is front end has changed a lot. I mean, there are people who are front end engineers who write JavaScript, you know, complex JavaScript business logic code and don't mm -hmm. write any HTML and CSS, but they're front-end engineers. Yeah. And I've, you know, heard of, uh, and, and everything else at the same time, you know, a lot of people are like, well, it depends on what you mean by full stack. Like I am comfortable going back and dealing with APIs or setting a new API up. Like, that's <laughs> not a problem. Is that, is that what you counted? I think over time, maybe as a testament to these tools, like the serverless uh, technology that existed, like um, the ability to run JavaScript on the back end, I really do feel like some people kind of splash at least a little bit of that full stack. Like, do, do mm -hmm. you think that all developers should be full stack developers or maybe all developers are full stack developers? Is that is that the thesis? Right, yeah, I think it, it really depends on, mostly on how big of a company you work at, I think, or how big of a problem, like what kind of problems you're dealing with. Because if you go talk to someone who's into AI and machine learning and ETL pipelines or whatever, I think that a lot of those people would say, well, yeah, if it's even touching the web in any way, that's the front end because the back end is the machine learning models and the neural networks and all of that crazy stuff. Like, oh, it's, it's writing business logic into the database and rendering stuff to and talking to the UI to render, yeah, all of that is front-end. But then you have people who work on really, really complex apps because a lot of modern, um, so like call, call them web apps so that we're not just saying front-end. A lot of modern web apps, they are as complex to work with or as evolved as a desktop app or an iOS app. There's just as much logic going on and it's, the way you develop those is actually a lot more similar to uh, to a to an iOS app than it is to a traditional website where you render some HTML and then maybe add some JavaScript for interactive buttons. It's a lot more like you consume data from the API and then you do all of these things and complex lo business logic and interactions all on the front end. Um, and then you also have uh, something where I don't know where that falls these days. I don't think it's full stack, maybe kind of middle stack where you have tools like Next.js or Gatsby or Remix, where it's all front-end code. It's dealing with rendering the UI and it's dealing with interacting with the user and it's not actually doing any domain modeling, maybe some domain modeling, but it's not talking to a database directly. It's not dealing with hardcore business logic. But it's actually running on the server because it turns out that with serverless, especially if you have edge nodes instead of like there's the servers, serverless, and then there's edge, 
especially with edge nodes, that's kind of running on the server that's very close to the user and it's rendering HTML and it's building full on HTML so that when the user comes on your web app, they don't see a bunch of loading spinners. They see the actual HTML. That turns out to be faster and more pleasant than a traditional uh, SPA single page app that does everything more like an iOS app. So which of those is full stack? It's really hard to say, honestly. <laughs> And it's so funny that you brought up the next and remixed uh, conversation, because I was going to say, you know, with those tools in, in 2020, you wrote a blog called what is front end um, mm -hmm. and asked people, you know, you interact with APIs, you handle form results, you know, you, you do all of this. Is that front end code or is that back end code? And, uh, you know, people had different opinions. I think with some of the sort of meta frameworks that we have now, that line is blurred even further. And I know some mm -hmm. of the people um, that have started looking into Remix, I feel like one of the things that they suffer, or not suffer with, but struggle with the most upfront is just going, wait, so where's my front-end code? Like, where yep. is my app? This, if this is the, is this the server? Is this the front-end? Um, mm -hmm. And so I think you're completely right. I, I think increasingly that line is, is disappearing. And maybe the new line is kind of, as you say, presentational engineer, design engineer, mm -hmm. user interface engineer versus maybe this domain logic or business logic engineer. Maybe there'll be yeah. more specializations, DevOps and and uh, reliability and, and mm -hmm. other things along those lines. But yeah. this traditional idea of which side of the internet you fall on is, is increasingly kind of irrelevant in a serverless distributed, mm -hmm. you know, edge computing world. Yeah, and then I think where it gets even trickier is like those really heavy web apps that I mentioned, they can have people who write code that's running purely on the browser, not even with Remix or anything on the, like a middle server. It's running purely in the browser, but it's not UI engineering because all they're doing is dealing with Redux stores or Mobax stores or heavy business logic that's running in JavaScript that then eventually somebody uses to render a React component. Um, is that, I mean, it's kind of front-end. It's definitely client development, but is it UI engineering? It's probably not. Absolutely. You know, going back to the the idea of the graybeards you were mentioning earlier, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I agree with you. I think the back-end often had this uh, opinion of itself that it had been immutable for, for decades. And the technologies mm -hmm. we once used, we still use, we still build on the backbones of the same databases and, and things like that. But, mm -hmm. you know, we're not the front end with their framework every, every week kind of thing. This was like an old yep. mantra. If anybody's young enough mm -hmm. to not have to have dealt with this mantra, congratulations. But for some of us, we remember this time. But what occurred to me is that the back end underwent a very similar rapid transformation where the entire industry went from monoliths to mm -hmm. microservices and then almost immediately from microservices to serverless. I'm kind of curious in your perception, like that microservices to serverless for people that found themselves saying, well, okay, I, yeah, I remember my team uses microservices. That's serverless, right? That's what you're talking mm -hmm. about. How do you see the distinctions there? Are the distinctions important? Or are they two different aspects of the same kind of idea you're trying to get across, just two different tools or, you know, how should people think about that difference? Yeah. So I think you're right. The backend, I would actually say the biggest transformation the backend went from is from 
developers and sysadmins to DevOps that was, and to SRE engineering. That was probably the biggest transformation the backend saw. In terms of monoliths to microservices to serverless, that's kind of more of a, um, technology-wise, that's actually not a big difference. Um, the way you build a monolith and the, ba- the way you build a microservice is pretty much the same. A microservice is just a small monolith and a common mistake that people make is that they think microservices are solving a technical problem. They're actually solving an, an organizational problem. The idea of microservices is to make it easier for large teams to collaborate. And like, for example, the DST bug that uh, we were talking about earlier today, the fact that we're somewhere in between transitioning from a monolith to full microservices really saved us there because we were able to deploy small parts of the backend without affecting other teams who who were like, no, no, please don't deploy our code. We have stuff that's not ready to go out. And instead of dealing with complex cherry picking or merge conflicts and kind of working around them, we were able to just deploy our parts of the code base uh, that were actually dealing with DST and that had these problems without touching anything else. That's where microservices really shine. Where what serverless did on top of microservices is to say, well, you know what, when you're building these microservices, which are basically tiny monoliths, you're repeating a lot of work. You're doing a lot of uh, routing setup, database setup, you're setting up all of these things. And then the smallest, tiniest part of your code is actually the business logic that you care about. What if we said, I don't know, maybe nano nano service would be a, a cooler name that would get more traction serverless. I feel like it's kind of, Nobody likes it as a buzzword. Everyone talks about it, but nobody searches for it, which is kind of weird. But anyway, these serverless functions, it's more like, what if instead of writing a tiny monolith, what if you just wrote your function that you actually care about, the actual business logic and the ecosystem around your function took care of all of the routing and talking to the database and all of that. So that's what serverless is. Um, You basically write just, like, or at least that's my favorite way to do serverless. You write the function that you care about. It just gets an a uh, like function arguments. They, those represent your query params or your API or whatever, and it spits out a JSON. So it's literally you get an argument and you you do stuff and you return some JSON, and then the ecosystem around your function takes care of talking to the open internet, going through an API gateway of some sort, having load balancers figuring out how many of your micros, uh, of your serverless functions should be running, uh, giving them the information, taking it back, translating it back into an HTTP response and dealing with all of that. And even talking to databases has been reduced to like calling a function that says, give me, give me some data. And then the ecosystem around it says, okay, I need to translate this into a query or into a NoSQL uh, lookup go talk to the database server, which is another essentially microservice that's running separately, um, get that data, return it to you. But to you as a programmer, it just looks like you're writing a JavaScript function that's calling other JavaScript function and functions and returning a JavaScript object. I think honestly, for anybody that's played around with this, either in their job or on a side project, that ends up being the thing that really is attractive, especially on side projects is, you know, mm-hmm. oftentimes you can get into a situation with a side project where you have a really cool idea that you want to implement. And then you're like, 
oh God, but the first few days I work on this is picking the server tech and installing this and setting up mm -hmm. that config and then reading 50 million blog posts because I forgot how to do all this stuff because it's been months since yep. the last one. And mm -hmm. um, and I love this because it's very similar to the reason why a lot of us use frameworks. You know, if, you, if you're trying to build, you know, uh, performant interactive web apps in the front end without frameworks, you spend so much time trying to synchronize state, how to update the mm -hmm. DOM correctly and verifying what's happening. And that was the promise of a React or a Vue or an Angular was that you could focus on writing the parts that controlled your domain logic, your business logic, mm -hmm. and let the framework handle how it all got to the screen. Um, yep. And maybe interestingly, that has trade-offs, as I'm sure the serverless mm -hmm. uh, architect sort of has uh, has these similar trade-offs. But I think that's the great power of it, right, is that these tools are force multipliers um, mm -hmm. allowing people to do more with less effort, uh, more quickly. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Well, then for people that are listening and, and they're saying, okay, well, that sounds interesting, but you know, I'm really nervous because I'm sitting around and all of a sudden I saw GitHub go down and the whole world melted. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I'm, I hear people talking about nines and however many nines they have in uptime, you know, does that mm -hmm. mean that if I'm going to start doing backend that I have to start worrying about these things? I know you like to call this, this topic, the deep backend. Um, mm -hmm. you know, what are your thoughts on that? Like, does, does working in serverless necessarily mean having to dip your toe into deep backend? How should people conceive of this difference? Oh yeah. Um, I think it kind of depends on what exactly it is you're doing. Like, the for for anyone who doesn't know caring about nines is basically how many 99 point how many nines nine percent uh uptime you have so i think um amazon is famous for aiming at five nines which means that when they had that outage a couple months ago where i think a whole availability zone went down for a couple hours that essentially destroyed their five nines for the entire year. They they will they cannot recover from that because I'm not going to do the math right now in my head, but I think five nines comes down to something like five minutes of downtime per year or something like that. It's a crazy small number. You are probably not Amazon if you're listening to me, or actually if you're listening to me, you're almost definitely not Amazon. You don't need that many nines. Um, it's fine if somebody comes to your website and it's a little slow or something is wonky, they will come back five minutes later. Um, you know, it's it's not like your, uh, like a number I know, Walmart, for example, when they, if they go down for, uh, during Black Friday, they're losing something on the order of five to $6 million of revenue per minute. Most of us are not there. Those are really nice problems to have. If you're making $5 million per minute, I can promise you that you can afford all of the SREs in the world who will make sure that you have five nines of, that you have five nines of availability. Um, but you do have to, when you're dealing with distributed systems on the back end, you do have to think about it a little bit. It's not in terms of nines per se, but you do have to keep in mind that anything could go down or anything could fail for any reason at any time. When you when you call the database, the database could have just been in the middle of upgrading to a new to a new version. So you have to maybe wrap it in some try catches and be able to recover from a database not responding to you. If you're calling another 
um, if you're calling another serverless function from your function, you have to know that that might not work. Maybe the internet is down. Maybe th that function is busy and unable to respond. Um, function serverless functions in general, especially on AWS, are really good at being up and scaling infinitely and really helping you out with that. But you know the server, the request can still fail for any reason at any time. Um, so that's kind of a new way of thinking for a lot of people who come from monoliths or from uh, or from from client code. Is that suddenly everything is not running on the same machine? So you have to take into account and you have to think a little bit about, okay, so what happens if this function calls call fails? Am I going to retry it? Am I going to give up? Um, am I going to say, okay, I'm giving up for now, but I'm going to put it on a queue to be retried later? Those things are just trade-offs that you have to think about. Um, but on the bright side, there's a lot of really great libraries that can do this for you. There's a new one I started using recently called Cockatiel where you can just say, hey, call this function up to five times, uh, like retry it up to, up to five times. Every time it fails, wait for another 100 milliseconds more in case it needs like exponential back off. Just give it time to, be, to come back. Um, just tiny little things like that can really improve the overall reliability of your site. Um, that's why in a lot of modern web, like big websites like if you look at facebook or amazon or walmart or any of those big guys you often see that they don't necessarily go down they just get slow and that's because this stuff is happening in the back end as the error rate goes up they start doing more retries it takes them longer to do everything but they eventually get it done so like uh at my old job we had an example where we our CTO was an old Amazon guy, so we really took the five nines approach and we were very careful about all of this. And whether it was warranted or not, that's a different debate, but we did spend a lot of time in this and we made sure that everything was reliable. And one of the biggest successes of this was that at one point we had something like a 60% error rate on our API or on a part of our API. Nobody noticed, not a single user complained uh, Everyone was just, hey, the site is kind of slow today. What's going on? And then we look and our uh, error charts were like, was like, whoa, okay, so that's what's going on. Um, so that's what happens on these websites. Instead of going down, they just slow down. And that's how they can kind of, I would almost call it cheating that you have five nines. Because, you know, there's five nines where, yes, we, in theory, we, reply, we responded to your request within 30 seconds, which is the timeout. It's like, does the user really want to wait 30 seconds for each request on the page to finish? Probably not. Um, so, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things is that it's funny that we drew a comparison between, um, a little bit of a comparison between serverless and front-end frameworks, because I think they also share a similar... I guess you'd say downside, but trade-off is the better word mm -hmm. for it, which is, you know, if you're using, if you have a React site, it's a React site. It's not mm -hmm. a Vue site. It's not an Angular site. It's a React site. And you pay some mm -hmm. cost for that. And I think similarly with serverless, one of the trade-offs is that, you know, to deploy it, there is no universal shared uh, proto, you know, a protocol 
for building mm -hmm. these things and sharing them across the different frameworks. You you leverage usually AWS or, or, or Google mm -hmm. or, or Azure or whatever it is, and you have this thing called vendor lock-in. Now, mm -hmm. one of the things that I think is super fascinating is that in the front end, or at least building these spas, let's, let's maybe stop calling it front end, but building these presentation <laughs> layers, you you almost never hear someone try to say, let's architect this in a way that we could swap out React for Angular uh, mm -hmm. effortlessly with as minimal effort as possible. But I feel like I see so many teams crash on the rocks of trying to avoid vendor lock-in under this idea that they could just effortlessly switch from AWS to Azure to Google if they, if they ever wanted to. Curious if you've seen this phenomenon as well and, and what your thoughts are on people trying to steer away from the trade-offs of serverless instead of just embracing it for both its positive trade-offs mm -hmm. and its negative trade-offs. Yeah, so I think on the front end, the reason we don't care about this so as much is because we've wisely realized that, hey, you know what? If we're changing so much that we need to change frameworks, we are probably also doing a full redesign. The business logic is going to be completely different. Everything is going to change so much that none of this code or very little of this code will be salvageable anyway. So we don't care because we know that the front end, the client probably goes through a redesign every couple of years. So who cares? Um, on the back end, people are very worried about this and I've seen this a lot. And I think it's because they assume their back end is going to live for way longer than it actually is. If you look at the typical startup, I think dies in the first year, maybe two years. The average business dies within five years of starting. So, you know, I don't think you're going to be changing backend vendors within those first five years. If that's what you're doing in the first five years, I, I hope you have better things to do with your life or with your business. Because uh, you would have to be very bored to deal with that. And when it comes to really large companies like Google or someone who has been working on the same backend code for like almost 30 years now or something, uh, they have a really good book about it. And it's like, yeah, you know, we are essentially vendor locked into Google hosting because nothing else existed when we started. We had to go bare metal and we had to host our own things. And we would love to use all of this new stuff, but we have a money printing machine and we have a bunch of people. We can just turn what we like to do into a public offering that others can use as well. And I think uh, AWS started in a similar way. And I think Azure started in a similar way. These are all people who are like, we have decades of experience. We're just going to convert it into a framework and convince the rest of the industry to use it rather than us switching to a different hosting provider because that's too hard. That's one of the things you can do when you get very big. Um, and where was it going with this? Yeah, so you mentioned that there's no translation layers between these. There's actually this thing called serverless framework, which I personally like to use because it makes infrastructure as code really accessible to people like me who hate DevOps and who don't want to deal with all of that stuff. Because you kind of just specify, you say, I need this function to respond to this URL. I need this SQS queue to exist and whatever. And they just do it for you. And in theory, you can then use the same configuration to just to change deploy targets and say, we are now deploying to Azure instead of to AWS. 
I think in practice, that's going to work in very few cases because even just in that short example, I said SQSQ, that is an AWS concept that exists on AWS. I don't think uh, Azure or uh, Google or GCP have and have the same thing. They have something similar, almost definitely, but it's not the same. So you already have to start changing things. And um, honestly, in my experience of working on the backend and trying to be vendor agnostic, that has resulted in some of the worst code that I've ever written. It's so much better to just say, we are going with these people. We like this when vendor, we have chosen them through our vendor selection process, whatever it is. Maybe it's short and fast and we just had a gut feeling or it's super slow and all of the engineers researched this for months, but you've made your decision, just lean into it. Go with that decision, use the vendor, rely on them. Uh, it's going to make your code a lot simpler, a lot easier. And in my experience, most of the problems that I've had with other vendors, it wasn't that the vendor was unreliable. It was that all of my code around the vendor trying to protect me from the vendor was what's failing and causing problems. Um, and it would have been so much easier to just say, you know what? We're going to use the vendor. We're just going to make an API call. We don't need to do all of this song and dance around this. Just call the API, get the result, use it. And then if you stop liking the vendor or if your business needs change and it doesn't fit anymore, just rewrite that part of the code because you didn't write as much of it, it's way easier to change. Yeah, you're exactly right, right? I mean, like that is, if anybody here is listening and you're doing this now in any capacity, not just about trying to avoid vendor lock-in, but so many uh, uh, mid-engineers becoming senior engineers and senior engineers becoming architects, believe this idea that I will just try to avoid coupling to anything. I will write abstract wrappers around everything. And what, what the most senior engineers will tell you because they bear the scars of this approach is that you're, you're not as smart at building these abstraction layers as you think they are because you're, they're hard. So something mm -hmm. like a serverless framework is, is probably functioning here. So as long as your use case doesn't need those specific technologies that aren't in the general set, um, then that's great. But what, mm -hmm. what, what tends to happen, and I'm sure this is what you were just talking about, is that you write abstractions as you think they exist, but then when you move to another framework, you learned those weren't actually the abstractions. The other, you know, the other vendor uses different abstractions, which are even more general than the ones you created. So not only do you not have interoperable code, you don't even have code that's optimized for the one thing you're secretly locked into you didn't know you're locked into. And yeah. so uh, you know, try not to be too clever for your for your own good. And uh, like mm -hmm. you said, just lean into it. Uh, you made the decision. Yeah. Uh, enjoy the benefits. Don't remove the benefits and take all the downsides too. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, in, enjoy the upsides. So yeah, like, and if anything, I would say that unless you're actively using two vendors for the same thing and at the same time writing an abstraction over them, your abstraction is almost definitely vendor locked in in ways you don't even realize until you try to use someone else. Well, that's great. You know, I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time at the near to the end of our conversation here talking about some of your other topics that you've brought up. Mm -hmm. You know, first of all, I think it's fascinating looking at your CV that you've written books on React, on data visualization, on serverless, 
on how to become a senior engineer and how to have a senior mindset. I, I guess sort of my first question is, do you see yourself as a generalist or a specialist? I know you've written a lot on this topic. I'm curious how you see yourself. Uh, um, I, I, I see myself as being in a niche. I don't like to say that I'm a generalist or a specialist because I what I like to do is focus on whose business problems am, am I solving and how. So my niche these days is I like to work with B2C companies who are scaling fast from either pre around series A and going into hyper growth. That's my sweet spot. That's where I can go in and where I have that ability to talk to a like head of engineering who's doing this for the first time or somebody who's just the other engineers on the team. And I can say, let's not do it that way because this is the problem we're going to hit in a month. This is the problem we're going to hit in three months. Here's what we're going to deal with in a year. So I think we should do it this other way. And that's where I think that's where I shine. I like to use JavaScript to do these things because I like JavaScript as a language. On the client side, I like React because I've noticed React just kills a whole slew of problems I've seen on various teams. And when you're using React, especially with TypeScript, those problems just don't exist. Um, so that's how I see myself. I'm not really, I can learn anything. I can be a generalist, but it's more, it's more about what kind of business problems and what kind of company I like to work with. And I, I love the way that you answered it because I think that gets to the topic of your book, which is to say that you didn't say I am a specialist because I know a lot about D3 and I know a lot about React. I know a lot about uh, Lambda and I know a lot about this. You instead categorized it as what is the type of business that you can help the most? What is the, what is the team that you fit best into? What is the problem sets and the set of issues that you are most skilled at addressing. And then you went on to say, and because of both familiarity and those types of problems, I like these technologies. I like these technologies. Okay. And so I think that's what's fascinating about your book is that you the book isn't technically how to become a senior engineer. It's how to develop a senior mindset. So I guess mm -hmm. I'm asking why was the mindset piece the part that you think was the the niche in this market of, of books about becoming a senior engineer that you thought you needed to fill? It's because I see that a lot of um, engineers get stuck thinking about technologies and being very technical. But after a certain point, at least when you get the senior title, that actually stops helping your career. It might help a little bit. Like, you know, yeah, you can learn, learn Rust and then you can go into companies that use Rust. Fantastic. But you're still just a code monkey. What you really want is to grow in your mindset beyond that I am a pair of hands that can solve tasks and go into, I am a mind that can solve problems that can, that can sell advice. And that selling advice part is where being in a niche versus being in a technology really helps because it's the battles, especially when somebody is hiring an experienced engineer, what they're really looking for are the battle scars. They want somebody who has been there, done that, and can tell them how to not get the same battle scars. Like, you know, React engineers are a dime a dozen, but how many React engineers know what it takes to grow a company from, let's say, 50 to 300 people? That is an experience that you can keep selling forever, even if the, even if the exact technology changes. 
the experience of knowing what it takes to grow from 50 to 300 or from 20 to 200 or from 1,000 to 10,000, knowing what that feels like viscerally, that's what uh, people are buying when they're looking for senior experienced engineers. And what I like about this too is that I feel like we found a thematic a thematic thread for this, which is to say that we really overcharge and, and overstuff the words senior, mid, mm -hmm. and junior to mean so many different things. Um, I mean, I've tried to tell people, I said, I have known some incredible coders who are mids <laughs> and mm -hmm. some very wise coders who get outshined by some juniors, but have some of those battle scars. I, I think that you're exactly right that there is a, um, there is both wisdom to be mm -hmm. gained in becoming a senior and in ways to learn to categorize the things that occur to you into uh, like process them and bring them in as wisdom. I, I sometimes talk right. to people like that, you know, part of what you need to do is to learn the framework so that when things are happening to you every day, you go, wow, that's an example of this. Mm -hmm. That's an example of this. It doesn't feel so chaotic and pointless. Yep. It feels like, oh, great. I now have another example here. I'm going to hang this on that fence. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think it's good that we, or maybe we need to, it's good that you're using the phrase senior mindset, but I think people get caught up so much about like, well, I just, but my title says this mm -hmm. and, you know, so that's what I need, right? I just need the title, uh, you know, yep. because that, you know, how do you kind of feel about titles and yeah, this mindset like, that you're describing? Yeah. I've, I've always said that senior engineer is probably the weirdest title in the industry because these days it can mean anyone from three years of experience to 20 or more. And obviously someone who is who has three years of experience being a engineer and someone who has 20, they're going to be very different, but they have the same title. Um, so I think there's a bit of title inflation happening. I feel like uh, because of that, we've started solving it in the last, like it only became popular maybe in the last three or four years. Uh, the staff engineer title just came out of nowhere all of a sudden. Um, and then for very big companies, you have E1 through to E8 or even E9 these days. So that's a little bit more granular. But I think in general, senior is just a very, it's a very fuzzy title. It can mean it's... In theory, it's very easy to get because you can just kind of stick around, especially if the company is growing. They have they were going to give you the senior title just because they're hiring new people who are less experienced than you or be, or so that you don't leave and go to a different company. And a title is very easy to give. Um, That's the truth. But yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, I, I we've all encountered issues where like you look at somebody's CV and they say, oh, I'm a I'm a CTO. You're, mm -hmm. you're a CTO of you know, what company and they say, Oh, the two person startup that I started out of college, yep. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like none of what we're talking about here should be taken as a, a point that you shouldn't think of yourself as a senior. You shouldn't try to go get that job as a senior. This is not about compensation. This is not about the title you can go and apply to get the, get the best job you can apply for the things that you're able to get by all means. I often tell people this is a separate track. It's again, we overcharge this term. This is something for your career development, that mm -hmm. path towards senior, which happens in parallel to and sometimes orthogonally to this other yeah. one, which is how you move up in your career. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, you know, we spent a lot of time and we, we kind of only have time for maybe one more question, which is 
we just talked a lot about wisdom. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. wisdom can't be learned. It can only be experienced. So in your book and in, and in, and in your consideration, what is the part of the mindset that can be learned um, that will help people become seniors over time? I think what can be learned is to have that business sense and to think about the the work that you're doing, not just through the lens of tech, but through the lens of what it's achieving for the company. And the other part I talk about a lot in the book is how to gain that wisdom. And the the best way to summarize it is to just make sure you have five years of experience, not one year of experience five times. And the best way to do that is to keep finding bigger and better challenges, even if that means, hey, this company just doesn't have big enough challenges for me anymore. I'm going to go to a different company. Um, that sort of thing is what I talk about in the book. Awesome. Well, we teased it a little bit there, but Swiz, uh, as we close out here, why don't you tell people how they can find you online and if there's anything that you would like them to check out if they've enjoyed this conversation today? Yeah. So the easiest way to find me is if you type in Swizzit's Teller into Google, it finds a lot. Um, if you go to serverlesshandbook.dev, you can see my serverless handbook with a lot more in-depth about serverless. If you go to seniormindset.com, there's a mailing list and soon a senior mindset ebook that you can download and read to your enjoyment, I hope. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for this conversation. That is going to be it for us today. Thank you for listening to the Modern Web Podcast on JavaScript in the back end and a little bit about the senior mindset as well. Thank you to our guest, Swizz. As always, we like to say that the conversation does not stop here. You can find Swizz on Twitter at S-W-I-Z-E-C. And you can find me online at RoboCell. As for the podcast, you can find us online at moderndotweb.com or on Twitter at modern.web. As always as well, thank you to our sponsor, Harmon. And we'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. This podcast is sponsored by this.labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O slash labs. Are all of your